Hello, my name is Jody Lima, and welcome to Dream Gardens, where we talk up the children's books we love. On this twice-monthly podcast, I interview other kids' books enthusiasts, such as writers, teachers, and librarians, about their own favorite children's books. The poem I'm going to start out today's podcast is called The Land of Nod. It was written by Robert Louis Stevenson, and it can be found in his classic collection of children's poems, A Child's Garden of Verses. Uh, Robert Louis Stevenson is, of course, the 19th century Scottish novelist, poet, and travel writer, and he's well known for his works like Treasure Island, Kidnap, Black Arrow, and my own personal favorite, uh, The Master of Ballantrae. A Child's Garden of Verses was a collection of 65 poems written specifically about and for children, and it was first published in 1885. The Land of Nod by Robert Louis Stevenson From breakfast on through all the day, at home among my friends I stay. But every night I go abroad, afar into the land of Nod. All by myself I have to go, with none to tell me what to do, all alone beside the streams and up the mountainsides of dreams. The strangest things are there for me, both things to eat and things to see, and many frightening sights abroad till morning in the land of Nod. Try as I like to find the way, I never can get back by day, nor can remember plain and clear the curious music that I hear. My guest today is Rebecca Behrens, author of the middle grade novels Summer of Lost and Found, When Audrey Met Alice, and The Last Grand Adventure, which was published in 2018. In addition, another middle grade novel, The Disaster Days, will be available October of this year, 2019. You can find Rebecca's website at RebeccaBehrens.com. Thank you for joining me today, Rebecca. Thanks so much for having me. Uh, and I mentioned uh, the last book you had published, The Last Grand Adventure, was in 2018. Uh, can you talk a little bit uh, for um, listeners who haven't had a chance to read it yet what it's about and what inspired you to write it? Sure. Uh, so The Last Grand Adventure is the story of 12-year-old B who thinks that she's going to be spending a few weeks in the summer helping her grandmother, Pidge, settle into a new retirement community. Um, but once she gets to Pidge's home, she realizes that her grandmother actually has a secret plan for them. Uh, she wants them to take a trip by plane, train, and automobile, going all the way from Los Angeles back to Atchison, Kansas, on the banks of the Missouri River. And that's because she believes if they get there by July 24th, they will finally be reunited with her long-lost sister, who is the legendary uh, pilot Amelia Earhart. And what inspired you to write this particular story? It was partly inspired by, I have sort of a lifelong fascination with Amelia Earhart. Uh, and that was mostly with her mysterious disappearance. Since childhood, that's something that has really fascinated me. And when I started doing more research on her life, because I thought I might want to write a book in which she was part of it, um, I just, I really you know, was astounded by her incredible life and her accomplishments. You know, aside from the mysterious disappearance, she was a really incredible and complicated person. And while I was doing the research, I found out that she had a younger sister whose name was Muriel. Her nickname was Pidge. And they had a very close relationship with a lot of the tensions that, you know, most people who have a sibling can relate to. And then I kind of started to wonder, like, wow, what it would be, what would it be like to have been Amelia Earhart's little sister, both while she was alive and doing all that, 
you know, incredible stuff. And then also after she disappeared and kind of having to grapple with the not knowing what happened and the legacy of her sister. Um, so that kind of inspired the character of Pidge. And to bring it sort of into, you know, a middle grade story, um, I was inspired by my own relationships with my my grandmothers, Betty and Margaret, who are very independent-minded and active and interesting. Um, now they're nonagenarians, um, but you know, obviously when I was younger, uh, they were a little younger too. But we had a lot of fun adventures when I was a kid. I went on road trips with my grandmothers and, you know, it was, they were special relationships. I kind of wanted to capture a relationship like that in a book where the grandmother and granddaughter relationship um, had a bit of adventure too. As I mentioned, you have another book coming out later this year in October, I believe, correct? And that's The Disaster Days. It is. And can you give a little sneak preview or as much as you can about that book? Sure. Um, So The Disaster Days, my first three books all blended historical fiction and contemporary fiction, or in the case of The Last Grand Adventure, that was um, purely historical fiction. The Disaster Days is kind of me diverging from that, and it is a realistic contemporary, but also a survival story. It is about a 13-year-old babysitter in uh, who lives on, on an island suburb of Seattle. And while she is taking care of her two younger neighbors, um, a massive major earthquake shocks the Pacific Northwest. And in the aftermath, they find themselves cut off from the rest of their town, the rest of the Seattle area, um, on their own for several days. And so my, my main character, Hannah, has to take charge of the situation and deal with the fact that they don't have power, they don't have fresh water, they encounter some threats, and they even have to deal with some injuries. And was uh, this based on any sort of uh, particular circumstance as well for you? Um, Not something that I have personally experienced, uh, but it was actually inspired by something that I read. I think over my lunch hour in the summer of, I want to say 2015, I was reading this really fascinating article in The New Yorker called The Really Big One. Um, The author was Catherine Schultz. And it was about, you know, this very real threat that the Pacific Northwest faces in terms of a, a major earthquake. She kind of outlined, you know, scenarios of what could happen if something like this occurred and um, kept kind of hammering home the point that, you know, the very basics of modern life and civilization, being able to, you know, drive home from work if you're a commuter or having a cell phone to use would be taken away in an event like this. And as I read it, I kept thinking about, well, what would happen if, you know, a kid was home alone or what would happen if a kid was babysitting when that happened? And I found myself really scared and intrigued by that idea, so much so that, you know, it stayed in my mind and I ended up researching and then writing this book um, to kind of explore, you know, a real life, almost dystopian situation like that. Now, on your uh, website, in your biography, uh, you've talked about uh, some of the work you've done as an editor working on a variety of books. And I was wondering, has that experience influenced uh, your own approach to writing, or is that just a very different skill set? Both are true. It's a it's a different skill set, and it has also definitely influenced me. Um, I have internalized house style guidelines for the publishers that I've worked for to a really strong degree, along with the Chicago manual style. And so, you know, that has had a strong effect on my writing and that there are certain style points that, you know, I can't not follow at this point. And it is in fact possible to have 
extremely strongly held opinions on things like hyphenation and the spacing of ellipsis points. I'm not sure that all authors feel as strongly as I do about punctuation. But kind of in a sort of a, a deeper level, um, you know, I was editing first textbooks and then kid lit uh, as a copy editor. Before I had the goal of publication, I was actually working in um, educational publishing as an editor. So I, I was used to taking a text and shaping it. And so in some ways, the revision process is still a little more comfortable to me than first drafting, just because I've had a lot more experience with that over time. But at the same time, I think that's why I love now writing my own works and being an author because I find it just so incredibly fun and energizing to get to turn off my internal editor and copy editor when I'm working on a first draft of my own. But I really do have to compartmentalize because if I don't, I'll start getting bogged down by style choices when you know, I'm still in that kind of you're in the sandbox first drafting when it should be exploratory and playful. Now, I understand you also offer a number of workshops that are dedicated to various aspects of writing. And I wonder if you could talk a little bit about uh, what sort of um, workshops you do offer. Sure. For school visits, I have presentations that I can tailor to a class or an audience, you know, depending on the the age or the size of the group, um, both about writing about real people, places, and events, um, and also on how a book is made, where I call on both my experience as an author and as someone who has been a publishing employee. And I've also presented at some school and library conferences on um, incorporating historical fiction into curriculum, sometimes using, you know, common core standards and stuff like that. And one of my favorite presentations was actually for SCBWI on research, um, fact-checking, and world-building, along with the craft of writing fiction that's either historical fiction or has a historical or a strong research element. Now, the the book you uh, picked as um, your your particular favorite children's book is the classic adventure novel Hatchet uh, by Gary Paulson. Uh, it was first published in 1987 by Simon and Schuster, and it won the Newbery Award in 1988. And uh, I mean, it's. I think it's a very familiar novel, but for those uh, who may not have yet had a chance to read it, can you talk a little bit about what it's about? Sure. So Hatchet is a realistic survival middle grade, and it is the story of 13-year-old Brian, who survives a plane crash while he's on his way to visit his estranged father in Canada. Um, I think his father is working as a, a mining engineer, and he's supposed to visit him for the summer. So he find, Brian finds himself stranded in the Canadian wilderness um, with really just the clothes on his back and a hatchet that his mother had given him as a gift before he left with kind of an offhand comment of maybe you can use it up in the wilderness. And even though Brian doesn't have any special knowledge about survival or the environment that he's in, he quickly learns how to stay alive um, despite threats from plants, from animals, and even from the weather. And while he's in this environment, he also begins to process some of grief and the feelings that he has about a, a family secret that he's been holding and um, the his parents' separation, which is, you know, kind of the catalyst for him being in that situation in the first place, taking that plane trip. Now, and rereading, actually rereading this book, um, you know, I thought about another book uh, that's and it has superficial similarities to uh, The Far Side of the Mountain. Uh, the, similar in that they both have characters, young boys who are isolated in the wilderness. Um, now, the big difference is in The in the Far Side of the Mountain, the boy uh, goes there by choice and has a lot of skills for surviving, whereas uh, 
Brian uh, is there purely by accident, and he doesn't really know what he's doing except by trial and error. I'm just wondering, what is it about Brian's, I mean, real lack of experience that makes his story particularly compelling? I think it's that he becomes such a relatable character. Um, You know, this is a really heightened scenario uh, in this story. And it would be easy for this to be, you know, kind of a a fantasy or an adventure fantasy that kids couldn't really relate to if he was someone who already knew a lot about his experience and could sort of, you know, just start taking off through the woods and, you know, everything was going great for him in that environment. His inexperience makes him a really interesting character who has a lot of obstacles. And the reader really gets a chance to identify with Brian as he struggles to accept the situation that he's in. And he grapples not just with like the external obstacles, but also internally with stuff like his own self-doubt. He makes mistakes, um, which he can't be blamed for because, you know, obviously he is inexperienced and he's in this really kind of amazing scenario. But of course, if he were an expert, the reader wouldn't be as tense in these situations, not knowing if Ryan is going to make it because his survival is really precarious. Now, even though he lacks a lot of these skills, uh, one thing he does have uh, is these memories he draws upon. He thinks about his teacher, uh, Mr. Perpick, uh, and uh, lessons that he um, imparted to him uh, through uh, at various times. There are times he spent with his friend that gives him some sort of clues as to what to do or what to think about. And I'm wondering if this gives us, um, even though he doesn't lack skills, it gives us some insight into Brian as a, a resourceful and intelligent person. Yeah, I think absolutely. The memories, especially the ones with Mr. Perpick, they, they really show that Brian is able to think creatively, and they show how he, he kind of draws upon and synthesizes information that he's come across in the past in like a really starkly different context, and is able to like use that to adapt to his current situation. And I think his teacher becomes a really important figure because, you know, Brian is estranged in a way from his parents, or at least that's a source of a lot of emotional um, trauma or tension for him in the story. And, you know, his relationship to them is kind of complicated. So his teacher's advice, um, which I think there was a point in the book where Brian talks about how Mr. Perpick had told him to get motivated a lot, or he told him that he was um, his own best asset. That's a really comforting and encouraging thing to Brian. Now, you've mentioned about Brian's relationship with his parents, and you've talked about The Secret, which has to do uh, with uh, the breakup as well. And this is a memory he comes back to again and again. And um, just wondering, what's the importance of this memory? And I'm wondering if this is a book not just about survival uh, in the wilderness, but uh, in some ways it's about uh, surviving, um, you know, a divorce and a family breaking up. Yeah. Yeah, I think almost an argument could be made that this is a survival story that is symbolic of the emotional and family upheaval that Brian is trying to survive in his regular daily life at the same time. Um, you know, with the plane crash in the woods, he's he's stranded in the wilderness, and he's 
kind of stranded both literally and emotionally in this book as he kind of grapples with the the secret and, you know, accepting his new um, family situation. And I think Gary Paulson does just a really masterful job of weaving Brian's emotional arc into the story um, where we see him get upset both because of, you know, his memories and the situation his family is in. We also see him getting upset about, um, you know, things that are happening to him in the wilderness in this. Um, and kind of getting to see both, you know, him respond to things on a more superficial level and a deeper level makes him a really well-drawn character and it makes him, the reader, so sympathetic to his struggle. And also I think it's, it makes the reader, you know, proud of him to watch as he, he deals with both things and, you know, comes up against a lot of stuff and just keeps going and keeps trying. And as well as these sort of these emotional up and downs, there's actually two points where he really sort of hits bottom. He where he gives in to just almost complete despair and hopelessness. So that's first time after the attack from the porcupine, and even more so later when he sees a plane overhead that doesn't see him, and he sort of uh, gives up. Uh, and and why do you think it's important to show these these moments where he sort of almost practically sort of gives up, but he still finds a way to prevail in the end. Why it's important to young readers to see those moments. Um, I mean, first off, I think it's because they're, they're realistic in a situation like the one Brian is in possibly the biggest obstacle he could face might be his own morale. You know, he has no idea if or when he's going to make it out of the woods, especially after the first couple of days where he thinks, oh, they'll find me quickly. You know, when he's been there for a while and he realizes this could go on indefinitely, that's a lot to grapple with. So I think all readers can relate to the frustration and despair he feels, especially when, you know, something goes wrong or he realizes he's made a mistake. You know, even if they can't relate to those feelings in such a high stakes and dramatic way, we've all felt frustration and despair and, you know, had moments where we almost give up, give up on something, especially writers, you know, in the publishing process. And so showing him confronting those feelings and then working through them is really powerful, especially for a young reader to see. And I think also from just a storytelling perspective, um, you know, again, the emotion is the toughest obstacle for Brian to overcome. And he's the sole human character for I think most of this book, aside from the people in his memories. So his own emotions and from a storytelling perspective start to function almost like an antagonist and they're helping create conflict. That's really necessary to keep the story engaging and also to create, you know, something for this character to bat up against. Brian uh, goes through a, a lot of different transformations in the course of the book, uh, some physical, uh, but in, in the way his whole outlook towards the natural world and how he fits in, and then a, a number of emotional transformations as well. And I'm wondering, uh, for kids reading this who will probably never go through an experience like he goes to, but still, what might they take from it, thinking about the the changes and challenges in their own lives that they're going through? Yeah, I think, you know, on the the level of um, the family situation that Brian is dealing with, that's super relatable. And I think kids are going to connect to Brian um, on that, because even if him being stuck in the Canadian wilderness is not something they can relate to, a lot of kids can relate to the fact that he's going through some family trauma. But I think this is a story that shows readers that even 
seemingly insurmountable challenges aren't impossible. And the same lessons that Brian learned from his teacher, from Mr. Perfect, he's demonstrating for the reader that it's definitely not easy to make your way through challenges, um, especially the ones that he's facing. But you don't have to start out as a hero or an expert to become one or even just to succeed at what you're trying to do. So the plot is an extremely heightened scenario, but I think it's a great message, especially for, you know, young middle grade readers that, you know, even if you don't think you can handle something, if you take it on, you may surprise yourself and you can work your way through it. I think part of the appeal of the book as well is, uh, you know, in some ways it's just a, it's a it's a really good adventure that kids can read. And I'm wondering, uh, were most kids reading this, uh, do they think to themselves, um, I'm glad that's not me going through this, or are they thinking to themselves, you know, I bet I could survive this too if I was in that situation? Yeah, I think probably a little bit of both. You know, it's a really exciting story, and unlike some exciting stories that might be in a fantasy genre or sci-fi, there is a degree of plausibility or possibility um, in this one, and sometimes people do get stranded in the wilderness. Um, I know when I read this book as a as a middle grade reader myself, um, I think part of me almost thought as, you know, preparation, like, well, now that I've read Hatchet, if that were to ever happen to me, you know, I I know some of the things that Brian has already kind of, you know, he did the troubleshooting for me and I wouldn't make the same mistakes like with the gut cherries. <laughs> but, you know, I think as, as kids, you know, the protagonist doesn't have that much more experience than they do, yet he makes it through by being clever and resourceful and by not giving up. Um I also think a lot has changed since, obviously, since this book was released in 1987. And we're all so much more dependent on technology now. And that includes young readers, kids. So, you know, I don't know. I think a lot of people, including myself, if I were all of a sudden put in, into an, in, a, in an environment where, you know, not only am I stranded, but I also can't rely on Google to help me figure things out, um, you know, that would really be a challenge. <laughs> So do you feel uh, less certain as an adult about uh, how you do than you did when you first read it? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, I think so. <laughs> yeah, I think, you know, now I realize as a kid, I think you're sort of um, maybe hopeful in a way of thinking like, oh, well, I'd figure things out quickly. And now I, you know, the the many scenarios of what could go even worse kind of ran through my head as I was rereading this. So, um, yeah, it's interesting how that changes. I, I guess I must be more of a a realist now about my survival abilities. Mm. Now, I, one question I often come back to, I find myself coming back to in podcast after podcast, uh, it just m must be an obsession of mine, is the idea of titles and where they come from. And in and, and this particular case, you know, this, this one word title, Hatchet. And I'm just wondering, and and who knows why titles are, certain titles are settled on, but do you think there's any significance in giving it this particular title is of all the possibilities of the uh, what this book could have been named. Yeah, that's a great question. I would love to see somewhere, um, you know, an inside story of if it was ever called anything different, if the manuscript he initially turned into as editor had a different name and how the title evolved. But with this particular title with Hatchet, 
I think it almost functions like the literary device metonymy, you know, where it's like the, an aspect or an attribute is standing in for the whole thing. Because the hatchet is the tool that really helps Brian survive his ordeal. And it becomes almost like an extension of himself. And it kind of represents his resourcefulness and his will to live and get through the situation. And it's really the thing that helps him confront and overcome um, the situation that he's in. And as I was rereading, it's it's interesting to me at, at one point later on in the book, he does encounter a rifle, which he rejects as a tool because um, you know, I think what the character says is when he uses a rifle, he doesn't have to know, feel, or understand, which is kind of supporting the idea that like the hatchet is part of himself. It helps him access his own knowledge and feelings. But I also think it's just, it's a really catchy and iconic title. Yes, I think so. And maybe it's as simple as that. It just sounded good. Uh, Are there any particular passages uh, from the book that you'd like to share? Yes. Um, And I'm going to flip to it right now. It's beginning on page 50. He was in deep woods and didn't have any matches, couldn't make a fire. There were large things in the woods. There were wolves, he thought, and bears, other things. In the dark, he would be in the open here, just sitting at the bottom of a tree. He looked around suddenly, felt the hair on the back of his neck go up. Things might be looking at him right now, waiting for him, waiting for dark so they could move in and take him. He fingered the hatchet at his belt. It was the only weapon he had, but it was something. He had to have some kind of shelter. No, make that more. He had to have some kind of shelter, and he had to have something to eat. He pulled himself to his feet and jerked the back of his shirt down before the mosquitoes could get at it. He had to do something to help himself. I have to get motivated, he thought, remembering Perpic. Right now, I'm all I've got, and I have to do something. And what is it about that passage that really stood out for you? I think it's a, it's a moment toward the beginning of the book where you see Brian, you know, he's He's become aware of really the situation he's in, and we see his thought process as he decides that he is going to become a very active character, and that he is going to find, with the help of his hatchet, he is going to find his own way to provide for himself and, you know, find his way out of this situation. Well, uh, Rebecca, uh, thank you for uh, picking this book. Give me a chance to reread it. It's been a while since I've read it. And thank you for taking the time to talk to me about it today. Yeah, thank you so much. I, I love this book, and it was it was really fun to revisit it and get to think about it again. You can find Rebecca's website at rebeccabarons.com. Thank you for joining me on Dream Gardens. The theme music, titled All Together, is provided courtesy of Purple Planet Music. You can visit them at www.purpleplanet.com. Podcast cover art was created through Canva which can be found at www.canva.com. You can visit me at jleemont.com or follow me on Twitter at DreamGardensJLM. The Dream Gardens podcast is also available through iTunes, Stitcher, Google Podcasts, and Spotify. If you like what you hear, please comment, share, or subscribe. And if you'd like to participate in the Dream Gardens podcast, go to the contact page on my website and send me a note telling me who you are and what book you'd like to talk about. And until next time, keep dreaming, keep growing, and keep reading. Keep reading.